happy Palm Sunday. Uh, so this morning we're looking at Matthew 21, 1 through 17. Matthew 21, 1 through 17. Find the words behind me on the screen, or if you've got it with you, uh, before we read it. Let's pray together. Once again, God, we, we just say thanks. Uh, thanks for this book, for, for the scriptures, for however it is it works. Um, by your spirit, you reveal yourself to us uh, in, in these ancient stories. And um, we ask for that to happen again. Uh, we ask for your voice to be the voice that we hear. We ask for, for you, Spirit, to do what you do in us. Um, once again, open us up, surprise us, change us, make us more and more like you, Jesus. Amen. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna! God save us. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what the children are saying? They asked him. Yeah, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called your praise? Then he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. What's going on in that story? So, I want to frame it like this. Sometimes we see... We see only what we want to see. Like we sort of construct reality in the way that we want reality to be rather than the way that, that reality uh, actually is. Sometimes we, we fool ourselves. Sometimes we're, 
we're sort of dishonest with ourselves. Sometimes we almost act as if, as if we might be a little bit delusional. Sometimes we even create an image of God that we'd rather see rather than the God that, that has been revealed to us in so many different ways. Sometimes we see only what we want to see, and most of the time, we're not even aware that we're doing it. Right? But this type of seeing, only what we want to see, uh, it sort of it starts when we're little. It begins when we're small. And I don't know when it starts, but it begins when we're not very tall. Um, take, like, I'm a parent. We've got three kids. Uh, we'll take Micah for an example. Is that okay, Micah? So Micah, when he was like three years old, um, like, he saw mom and dad as like the best, right? We were the best, especially when we let him do exactly what he wanted to do. Like when he wanted to shoot hoops or when he wanted to play with his cars or when he wanted to, to watch his favorite TV show on, on TV, Paw Patrol. When we let him do those things, he saw us as the best two people in the world, like no one better ever, uh, like up here. Right? But then, when he was doing those things that he really wanted to do, we had let him you know, do something like watch Paw Patrol, and then we'd say to him, um, Micah, now it's time for us to get, we come to the table. It's time to eat dinner. This doesn't happen anymore, by the way. <laughs> so we'd be like, hey, it's time to eat dinner, or, or it's time to get your PJs on and brush your teeth. It's time to get ready for bed. You can pretty much guess what would happen, Right? When he was three, it's a little different now. It's similar in some ways. But when he was three, he would throw a fit. Like, sometimes he would throw a big fit. He no longer saw us as the best two people on the planet. He saw us as two big, very mean people messing around in places in his life that he didn't want us to mess around in, right? He saw us the way he wanted to see us. Samuel, it's time to pick on you. I remember... When Samuel was three years old, and we'd ask him to, I'd ask him to do something that he didn't want to do because he was doing whatever he wanted to do, let's get ready for bed, whatever, he would stand up and walk right up to me, point at me in the face, and say, Daddy, you go back to work. <laughs> Tough kid, right? That's bold. In other words, I don't want you messing around. That's one of my favorite stories to tell about you, Samuel. Because it was like, wow, that was bold. You go back to work. In other words, I don't want you messing around in my life right now. And you kind of expect that when kids are three years old, right? You expect that kind of behavior. They're three. Problem is, we never really lose that inclination to see things the way we want to see them. It sort of sticks with us. And I think it's important for us to be aware of it. And I think it's important for us to acknowledge that reality. Like the people in our story this morning, the, the, the very large crowd that Matthew was, was telling us about, that were witnessing Jesus, they were seeing what they wanted to see. So here's what we think they saw, given what we're seeing in the story and how it was written and how it's been shaped and molded and handed down and given to us. This is what we think was going through their minds when they saw Jesus coming. They saw, they saw their king riding into Jerusalem, just like their scriptures said he was. 
See, daughter of Zion, your king comes to you. So this is all prophesied for us in the scriptures. So they saw Jesus as their king riding into the city. He entered the city during Passover where there were thousands of Jews who had already made their pilgrimage to the city of Jerusalem. The streets were filled and the occupying Romans were on high alert. They're watching what's going on. So in Jesus, the people saw their king who would finally galvanize their people together and provide the kind of uprising necessary and the kind of uprising that the people were counting on. In Jesus, they saw their king who would sort of put together the army ready to do battle with the Romans so that they could take their city back. Hosanna, they shouted. They waved palm branches in the air. God, save us, liberate us from Roman occupation. They expected Jesus to come in and then assume his rightful position on the throne of Israel and usher in this new era of what we might call health, wealth, and prosperity for the people of Israel. That's what they wanted. That's what they yearned for. That's what they hoped for. They were seeing what they wanted to see in Jesus. And if we're really honest about it, it's not hard to see why. Right? They're living in their own city, their own nation, with an occupying foreign army. Of course they want liberation. And the only thing that they could imagine, the only way they could imagine getting out from that, that occupation was a violent, bloody revolution. Listen to this. Here's what happened 200 years before the story that happened that we just read. 200 years before this story, there was a guy named Judas Maccabeus. He was known as the Hammer. Sounds like he's a WWE wrestler, right? He's known as the Hammer. He entered into the occupied city of Jerusalem 200 years prior to this with people waving palm branches. That began what's known as the Maccabean Revolt. Have you heard of this? The Maccabean Revolt? It was a war, really. And like all wars, it was bloody. It was violent. And eventually, they won back the city of Jerusalem. Hooray! It was the first time in nearly 400 years that Jerusalem was now their own city. It was not occupied by a foreign power. And it stayed that way for 100 years until Rome came back in and took the city once again by force. So it's not hard for us to understand why the people expected Jesus to come in as a conquering king and usher in a new era of health, wealth, and prosperity and get, make Israel great again. Right? They wanted an insurrection. They wanted a violent, bloody revolution because that's the only thing they could imagine could take place in order for them to get what they wanted. It was part of their history. It was part of their story. They were seeing what they wanted to see. But here's the problem with this vision of Jesus. When you think about it, it doesn't take us very long if we're actually paying attention. This image of Jesus was completely, entirely, totally, completely, any other word, let's find all the synonyms, completely, totally, utterly inconsistent with who Jesus revealed himself to be. Jesus, he wasn't a violent man. Nope. 
He either avoided situations that could become violent, or he did his best to defuse them. So he wasn't violent. In fact, he was the opposite. He was a healer. He walked around putting people's lives back together again. He was, a, he was known as a friend to sinners. He was compassionate to the poor. So he wasn't violent. He was a healer. He was a teacher. What did he teach his followers to do? He taught his followers to love their enemies, to pray for those who persecute them, to live this new kind of life in this new reality that he called the kingdom of God. And the only time his anger ever showed up in physical force was when he went into the temple and started flipping over tables. But even then, even then, who was he working for? Even then, he was working for the poor. He was working for people who had a a disadvantage. He was trying to overthrow a system of temple business that essentially stole from the poor and lined the pockets of the already rich and already powerful. Right? So if Jesus were a guy coming into Jerusalem, trying to galvanize the people against Rome, this was not a good strategy. He would want the rich and powerful Jews of his time to be on his side, but instead he goes into the temple and starts messing, into, messing around in places that they wouldn't want to mess, him or mess around in. They, he went into places that people didn't want him to go. Then, this is interesting, he heals, a blind, he heals the blind, trying his best to desperately help everybody else to see as well. But they don't. They don't see. They don't get it. And when he starts messing around in the temple business, when he starts messing around in places people don't want him to go, it's all downhill from there. His own people turn on him. His own rich and powerful, they turn on him. And we all know where this week ends. It starts with shouts of praise. Hosanna, save us. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And it ends with shouts to crucify him, to kill him, to murder him. This week ends with Jesus on a cross, dead, then locked away in a tomb. So here's the deal. If we're honest about it, we aren't that much different than the people in the story. Like we have this inclination to see what we want to see. We have no trouble seeing Jesus as a conquering king coming to get us, give us what we want, right? Jesus' people have this inclination to see Jesus the way we want to see him. That's what Christian nationalism is all about, right? That's what violent insurrection is all about. We've got to take back this country for Jesus, and if we have to do it by means of violence, okay. We see what we want to see, and we have to call that what it is. It's anti-Jesus. That's opposite Jesus. That's anti-Christ. But we have this propensity, this inclination to see what we want to see. We have no problem. Of course, there there are less there are more subtle ways that this works in our lives, right? Rather than violent revolution, 
We have no problem seeing Jesus as the one who comes to serve us, to feed us, to help us conquer things in our lives in order to help make us more more successful, more fulfilled, more whatever it is we want, health, wealth, success, you know, you name it. I think sometimes Jesus comes to do that for us. I think sometimes Jesus comes to to remove barriers to help make us healthy. I think sometimes Jesus does conquer things in our lives in order to change us. But I think Jesus also goes farther than that. I think Jesus messes around in places where we don't necessarily want Jesus to go. Like walking into the temple, start flipping over tables. He's, he walks, he meddles around in our lives. He upsets the tables in our own lives. He tries to reorient us. He starts messing with our priorities. And this week, this holy week, if we're not careful, we can wind up doing the same thing that the people in the story did. We can wind up locking Jesus away somewhere, maybe in a tomb, in a place where he can't mess around in those places where we don't want him to go. Right? We don't want Jesus messing with our bank accounts. Right? So we, we lock him away. We don't want Jesus telling us that we consume entirely too much and we give way too little. So we lock him away. We don't want Jesus telling us that our lives are just way too busy and too hectic, so we lock him away. We don't want Jesus telling us that gossip hurts, so we lock him away. We don't want Jesus telling us that we, that we ignore the poor, that we ignore the lost, we ignore the least of these, so we, so we lock him away. And then Easter comes back around. We'll celebrate. We'll sing our songs. We'll have our Easter feasts. We'll shout, hooray, God save me from my sins. But then our lives will be no different. Monday morning, we'll walk out of here on Easter morning the same way we walked in. If we're not careful, unchanged and unmoved. But it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't. It does not have to be that way. As we close out the season of Lent with Good Friday and Easter, it doesn't, it doesn't have to end that way. Like this season where we end in resurrection, it can be different. Because not only does Jesus intrude into our lives and start messing around in those places where we don't want Jesus to mess around in, he also... He also shows us the kind of lives that he wants us to live. While we're concerned with seeing Jesus only the way we want to see him, Jesus is concerned with us being who he wants us to be, being who we truly are, being who we've we've been created to be. And his life can be, should be, ought to be a template for us. And just look at the way he rode into Jerusalem. He didn't ride in on a stallion. You've heard this before. A war horse. Right? A symbol of, a symbol of war and self-aggrandizement. No, he rode in on a humble donkey. Right? He tried to clean out the temple, the religious structures and systems. 
He tried to clean out the rottenness and corruption there. He made the the blind to see. He healed people. He cared for the poor. He lived his life among the forgotten ones. He is humility. So there's this guy named Paul um, of Tarsus. You could think of that as his last name if you want. Paul, maybe you've heard of him. He wrote most of the New Testament. He wrote these words. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or held onto or exploited for own self-gain, but emptied himself. He emptied himself self, taking on the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He emptied himself. I I love those words. I think those are important words. He emptied himself. So this season of Lent is a a metaphor we use for it, it's a journey. It's a journey toward the cross. And normally when we set out on a journey, we like to fill up first, right? How many of us went somewhere for, for a spring break? What did you do the, the day before or the morning of with your vehicle? Fill it up with gas, right? Fill it up before you go. You fill it up so that you can go as far as you can get, as fast as you can get there without having to stop before you have to fill up again. We fill up our, our trunks or the back of our vehicles with most of the time we overpack. We bring too much stuff, right? We put a flashlight, we put napkins in the, in the glove compartment. We'll stash an emergency kit. We'll put a bunch of other stuff in the back seat so that the kids can be occupied and not make too much noise while we're driving down the road and not get a headache and all that kind of stuff. And, and we pack bags or coolers filled. We just fill up bags and coolers with all kinds of snacks so that we don't have to stop, so they can keep everybody quiet and calm and, and satisfied. We always talk about we would never leave on a journey unprepared. We always fill up. But Jesus didn't do that before making his journey. He emptied himself. In fact, if you read the stories about him that we find in the Bible, he always seemed to pack extremely light. Like, there's no place in the Bible, there's no place in the stories about Jesus where we see him described as carrying a large pack of stuff around him with supplies that he was going to need. In fact, he even encouraged his disciples when he sent them out. He told them specifically, pack really light. Don't bring much with you. Maybe there's something to that. Maybe there's something to that. Maybe it's only when we empty ourselves. Maybe it's only when we empty ourselves that we then gain the ability to see Jesus for who Jesus really is. Maybe it's only down on our faces in humility that we can truly see ourselves and each other for who who we really are. And maybe that's what a journey to the cross really should be about, emptying ourselves 
Letting go, giving up, giving up control, submitting, committing, to voluntarily giving our entire lives to Jesus in order to allow Jesus to form himself in us. I wonder if that first Holy Week would have been different if only the people could have let go of of who they wanted to see Jesus as and, and allowed him to show them who he really is. But of course, they didn't. And that week then ended in the cross. So we'll go there too on Friday. But this cross we're journeying to isn't just the cross of Jesus. It's our cross too. It belongs to us. That same dude, Paul, wrote, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, in us. It's our cross too, not only because it's the saving power of Christ, in us to save us from our sins, as we like to say. But the cross is also an example. The cross is also a template. The cross is also a way of life. It's not just the instrument of death that gets us to heaven. It's also a way of life. It's why Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. The cross, submission, giving up, emptying, self-giving love. It's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of, of great strength. In opening ourselves up so that Jesus can enter in and reorder everything. Maybe it's time for us to, to all do a little emptying. Because I think there might be, maybe, quite possibly, there might be a resurrection around the corner. Let's pray.